What's up, everyone? Happy Tuesday. Great to be back here. Um, good to see you all. I was thinking before we got on here, I was looking back at what episode this is. This is uh, of demand, not of the pot of the podcast because we mix a lot, but of actually doing this live show. It's episode 83, which is a lot when you think about it. And we've only missed a couple of weeks because I was feeling under the weather. But besides that, we've been going strong since late March. And so I just wanted to take a moment um, to all the people that attend live, to all the people that listen to the show, to all the people that get value from it and participate and help ask questions. I just want to say thank you. I was reading some of the podcast reviews before I got on here too, and just want to express my gratitude for like how, how many people listen to this podcast, how many people said nice things about the the value that they're getting out of it and how it's making them better. It makes me super happy. So um, that's how we're going to get started tonight. Uh, appreciate you all. And now let's get into the the topics. So where we're going to kick off tonight, I was actually, when I was putting the, the agenda together on Sunday this week, I was thinking through because last week someone asked me a question about TikTok and because and, we've been talking about how we're starting to pursue that. And so, and then they asked me a question of like, you know, why would you do it? And I gave them some answer of like, you know, a lot of people are coming there and the platform's going to be important. So you might as well go there. But I actually thought about it more and I want to reframe. I want to reframe my answer. And the answer is why we're prioritizing TikTok, but maybe you shouldn't. And so raise your hand in the audience, people that um, remember the, the must listen podcast episode, Marketing is Pure Offense, my favorite podcast episode by far. And so this is what us running in TikTok is pure offense, right? And so a lot of companies are not where we are. They don't have a live event strategy that's working. They don't have a podcast that's coming out three times a week that's working that people love. They don't have that repackaged onto LinkedIn in order to get the, the value from it. Now we're scaling that into YouTube with daily videos. And now we're moving into TikTok, right? So for some companies, moving into TikTok seems foreign because they don't have a lot of the other things running. But as you start getting the wheels turning and the things moving, you can start to play offense. And so it doesn't look like it makes sense to companies out there that can't figure out how to do anything but write their blogs. But to us, it's the next logical step to make. And it's making a big bet in something. It's not even a bet, right? It's almost like it's obviously going to happen. We're just moving in there and investing early so that when everything moves, we can be there. And so to zoom out, I, just to bring us back to the the offense topic. This is what happens when you build momentum over years. This is why we need to look at marketing over a long period of time. Because as you start putting the pieces together, you get compounding gains. You move exponentially further ahead of people that are not moving at your speed. You have three or two or one, two, three channels that you're operating on that your competitors are not operating on at all. And you just have complete freedom to market directly to your customers and nobody else even knows what to do there. And so that's why we're prioritizing TikTok, but it's also why maybe you shouldn't. Moving on to the next topic. This one I think is an interesting clarification point. I've actually explained this to a couple of CMOs recently and I explained to someone else on the podcast and starting to uh, really help people understand why we look at this in two ways. Because when we look at opportunity source, a lot of people think that we're running single touch attribution. <laughs> And that's not at all what we're doing here. And so um, I want to talk through, we look at opportunity source, um, which is the main source that companies would use to define where a lead entered the pipeline or an account entered pipeline. And people are looking at it as if multi-touch attribution is an alternative, which my belief is that it's not because multi-touch attribution blends all the touch points together, tries to assign some percentage value to each touch point, but it doesn't help you guide strategy. And so let me talk through how we guide strategy using these two different points. So number one is the opportunity source, which means what is the source that happened that drove someone to start an opportunity and enter your pipeline? The reason that we're looking at this is because it's going to have, it's the biggest predictor and it's going to have the most correlation to sales velocity metrics, win rates, conversion rates through the funnel, sales cycle lengths, ACVs, even ACVs will be lower for some and higher for others. And then if you put those all together, you'll see how much velocity is moving through your pipeline over any given period of time between different sources of pipeline. And so different sources of pipeline could be, and we're going to combine it. There's two things. There's what the campaign type or the campaign, what they converted on, 
and then there's going to be the source or the channel. And there are actually two things. So it could be paid search, source, ebook, download, can, campaign. And then those two things get put together and those become something that you look at or organic to demo request or case study download to cold call, or I pulled them out of Zoom info to cold call, or I got them from content syndication to cold call. And so you can look, and then if you split those all out, this is the split the funnel analysis, but we're just talking through it in a little bit of a different angle here. If you split those all out, what you're going to see is that some win at a small rate and they have very long sales cycles and others win at a very high rate and have way faster sales cycles. The reason being is because it's a surrogate for the intent of your buyer and it basically can help you predict at what point, at how much, how far done in the process a buyer is when they enter into your pipeline. Shorter sales cycles, higher win rates, they're gonna be further down the, down the process. Conversely, we have what people look at as multi-touch attribution, which is basically meant to try and measure everything, assign values to each touch point and give credit to channels. But if you look at multi-touch attribution, you're not going to get the insight about where they entered pipeline, which is a huge, huge factor to optimize against. Because like I mentioned before, you could have some sources of pipeline that convert at 0.1% and others that convert at 8%. And if you didn't have that insight, how would you know from your attribution software how to architect the mix? You wouldn't. You'd just be like, oh, Google Ads drives some revenue. Oh, this drives some revenue. So you actually need to look at it in, in separate ways here. And it's for whatever reason, I just don't understand how, how people do not look at this in such a detailed way because it, can liter it will literally guide your marketing strategy. You can look back at where did the revenue come from and reverse engineer the buyer journey. Reverse engineer, okay, they, you know, they got into pipeline because they filled out a demo, because they came to this page, because they landed on this page, because they came from this source of traffic. You can go all the way back to that. And that gives you a huge insight about where people are coming from. And if you actually look at your revenue, you'll see that there's only a couple of key paths where a majority of it comes from. And then you have all of your other attribution methods that we've talked about, self-reported, multi-touch, all these other things that you can use to start to figure out how am I going to use these different channels to move people through those buying paths that we know convert to revenue at the highest rate. And so that was a little bit conceptual. But that is a huge insight for people. Um, some companies don't even track this. If you have a, like a relatively immature marketing ops, rev ops setup, like you might not even have this data. And if you don't have this data, it's almost impossible to drive strategy decisions. You don't have this and you have multi-touch attribution. You're, just, you're essentially just guessing. So highly recommended opportunity source. Make sure the rules are set up. Make sure everyone understands all the definitions. And this is not to assign credit, it's to reverse engineer buying, buying journeys to drive strategy. Got a few questions on this topic to keep it going. That cool. works for you. I'm going to bring up uh, Jessica first and then my good friend, David Kay. Jessica, good to see you. Thanks for coming back to the show. Hi, I've been listening while I haven't been here. <laughs> Great to have you back. Um, so just wanted to clarify, Chris, a lot of the episodes that I've listened to recently, you've mentioned lead source. So what does that mean to you? Is that the acquisition source or does it depend on the company you're working with? I'm not exactly sure what I said in that context, because every, every company calls it slightly differently, which is why on the third point here, like standardized measurement will come with standardized definitions. And so I'll talk through that later, but like lead source opportunity source are generally the can generally be the same, but can in some instances be different, right? So if you're like, if your whole goal is to have someone convert from content syndication and then roll through marketing automation for nine months until it hits an MQL score and then it gets cold called, like from, for me, my lead source on that would be MQL score to cold call, not content syndication. Content syndication would be like where I got the contact information, but it wasn't what drove the opportunity. So then you could look and you, if you had the source of like, okay, what are the sales velocity metrics for our MQL score? And you could run that, right? Because it's basically MQL score to cold call, which is what people are doing. Um, and it do, maybe it matters where if they came from a LinkedIn ad nine months ago or a content syndication thing or something else nine months ago, I don't know. But then you could look and you could say, okay, our MQL score versus just doing straight cold outbound, what's the difference? 
So I'm not sure if I fully answered your question, so feel free to answer a follow-up. But I would say in most instances, the same for companies that are running lead gen in order to do sales, which a lot of companies do, like let's get a lead in, let's, we don't even care about nurturing them and we're just going to cold call them, then that, the lead source and opportunity source would be the same if an opportunity was created. Okay. Yeah, I feel like it was the context of, I think you were talking about like ebook downloads versus demo requests and mm -hmm. I guess email or ebook download in that case would yeah, be the same concept. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, and so we look through this with a big comparison is ebook versus demo request because companies are obsessed with the HubSpot inbound model from 2009 or whenever it came around where you have someone fill out a gated, you know, ebook at the top of the funnel and then they go through marketing automation, we give them some content and then we hit an MQL score and cold call them. That's what people are doing. Um, and I just show them that like, look, this is what you're doing. You're creating a bunch of leads, basically contact information that's going through all of these automation and all this activity so that you can create a lot of data. But when you actually look at it against other things, it's just like not very productive. And it's odd. Like people, a lot of people assume that they'll download that piece of content. They'll run through all this automation. And then if they like, then a lot of people will come back and submit a demo later. It's actually in the cases that I've looked at it actually quite rare that that happens. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Jessica. Good to have you on. Continuing this, David Kay had a question about lead source as well. So come on the show, David. You're live. Hi. So kind of picking up from where Jessica was leaving off, perhaps, and maybe this is a question more for Sydney in the end than for you, but imagine you're a B2B SaaS, and if you could set up your lead source, lead source detail, um, first touch, last touch or most recent touch, excuse me, how would you advise or suggest people might want to set that up? And again, for the context of a B2B SaaS business, because there probably could be other ways for other contexts, but given that context, I've seen lead source, lead source detail, mm -hmm. um, first lead source, and most recent lead source, so that you can track where someone originated from versus the, the status just before they became converted, for example. And it can all get very complicated as you carry these fields around, but that might not be the best way to do things. What kind of thoughts would you have on that? Yeah, I mean, there's probably some like attribution software that's going to give you it cleaner, but typically we see source, source detail, most recent source, which can be used to stamp opportunity source, right? So if you take most recent source and then an opportunity has been created right after that, then we're actually going to copy that source on the opportunity, which then we're going to use to predict funnel metrics like I just talked about. And then tracking like a HubSpot and other ones will track original source or first touch. Um, so generally that's what I see and what I use. And the reason is because like, there's not much more that you need, right? Like all I really need is what is the path that buyers are converting to, to enter pipeline. And from there I can use qualitative insights, self-reported attribution, and a lot of the other stuff that we talk about in order to figure out how to architect the mix to move more people through it. And so I think there's a dramatic diminishing returns on this data over like anything farther beyond what you said, it's probably major diminishing returns. Thank you. But good, good question. I'm sure Sydney might drop some more wisdom in the chat too. I'm keeping an eye out, Sydney. All right. We had some really good questions submitted in advance. So I'm going to bring on Dave so that you can talk through your question. Um, and then now the TikTok questions are coming out. So we'll circle oh, back later with uh, back to TikTok. But Dave, welcome to the show. Love having you on. How you been? Good. How are you all? Hey, Dave. Great to see you. Same here. Uh, this is a rather involved question. I'm trying to figure out how I can get straight to the point to make it less so. But uh, basically, the issue is about, um, I think of it as disintermediation of the sales rep in complex B2B sales. So what I mean by that is, it seems to me that for many sales reps, even in complex, you know, big ticket B2B sales, the sales rep's role is becoming smaller and shorter. Uh, there's all kinds of evidence that shows that buyers have made much of their decision. You know, before they want to talk to a sales rep, you often talk about the way people prefer to buy. They often prefer to go through a lot of their own research before they talk to the sales rep. I'm all in favor of enabling buyers to buy the way they want to buy. However, I will also say that good sellers 
can add a huge amount of value that many buyers are unaware of. And this brings us into the whole realm of value selling. And the theory behind value selling is that through an exchange between the seller and the buyer, the buyer and seller co-create value for the customer. And that occurs through a mutual discovery process where they have an extended dialogue. The seller asks them about their business processes, diagnoses their problems, comes up with more or less a custom solution that's specific to the buyer and helps them think through the, uh, the value messaging that they can take to their management. In other words, what's going to be the economic justification for this? Now, not many sellers can do this by some statistics <laughs> about, uh, I read uh, somebody said about 43% of sellers can effectively do value selling. Uh, that came from Dave Curlin and he interviews all kinds of uh, sellers. But for the ones who can do it, it's the pinnacle. It's the pinnacle of sales skill and it can help you preserve margins, help you preserve prices, help you build a preference for your product help you edge out the competition and so on. So my question, I'm sorry this is long-winded, but my, it's great. My, my question is, in cases where sellers can add a huge amount of value, if they can get in touch with a buyer earlier to have this kind of mutual discovery process that builds value, are sellers just supposed to acquiesce that, you know, that marketing is going to bring them people that are 75% done and possibly shopping on price? Or you read all the books on prospecting, they all tell you, no, you need to do a lot of prospecting so you can get to the prospect who's not actually shopping. Well, that sounds like marketing to me, not selling. And if so, then what's the role of marketing in helping to sell value? Especially when marketers have no clue how to do it because most sellers don't have a clue how to do it. Does that make sense? Is that too long-winded? Oh, oh, it does make sense, Dave. The missing piece here is that the company and the individual seller need to demonstrate and prove expertise before there's a sales process, uh, right? And that's what people are missing. People are always trying to go right into the sale, right? Three years ago, if I was cold calling CMOs, zero people would wanna to talk to me. Now, pretty close to almost every CMO in a certain company size will take a meeting with me. And, and that's because I've dem- been able to demonstrate the uh, level of expertise that I have. And so I'm not going in there being like, I can come and prove value, which is basically me aligning my solution to your current situation. That's not what I'm doing. I'm giving you a bunch of information so that your situation gets better, so that you see it, so that you consider using me to make it continue to move and go faster. And that's the, that's the missing piece in enterprise sales because they just try and move someone right into the meeting in the sale when someone's not ready. They need to put that information out on the internet. They need to let people get value from it. They need to demonstrate credibility and build trust. And then it happens. So that can be at the marketing level. That can be at the individual seller level. That could be at the sales team uh, level or solutions engineer, you know, whatever you want. The seller that you described was really more like a solutions consultant than a, than a sales rep um, that can put together a custom solution, understand the problem, do things like that. That's the short answer. And so it's just a, it's something that almost every company struggles with because in order to really do it, you need to separate from the outcome and you need to separate from your product. You need to be customer centric, not my product centric into the customer's world. So those are a couple of thoughts, but we would love to uh, keep going if you want to talk more about it. Well, I, I think that's a terrific answer. I, I honestly wasn't uh, sure how to answer it because it's something I've been wrestling with for like, a month or longer. And I think you gave a really good answer. So if I could try to recap what I think you said, mm-hmm. it is that if you want to be an effective enterprise seller and you want to engage with a customer earlier, you first need to build or gain the credibility that makes them understand the value you can offer. And you do that in a sense by marketing yourself before somebody's looking to engage with you. Now, that's a very different mindset than most sellers have, because most sellers, when they're out on social media, they're promoting themselves. They're doing lead gen. That's exactly what they're doing. Exactly they're thinking, what's <laughs> I can't bother trying to build credibility for myself and my sales team for two reasons. One, it takes too long. That's marketing's job. Number two is, and I know this because I've lived it, 
I run the risk of creating demand for other sellers in my organization. Oh yeah. That's the number, gonna benefit the number from one me. reason that salespeople don't do it, by the way. We haven't talked about that much on the show, but that's the number one reason why, why reps are not incentivized to do it is because the way attribution set up in their company would almost always have this fail. They would be doing a ton of work and they, like you mentioned, it would be going to other people. It would get round robin. It would be difficult to track. I'm totally with you there. I didn't mean to interrupt you. Keep going. Sorry. No, it's, it's, it's perfect. We agree completely. I mean, I've, I've lived this where, you know, you as a, as a, maybe an enlightened sales rep realize you need to be doing marketing, but you've got a list of 35 named accounts, right? What's the chance that the marketing you do is going to benefit you in one of your 39 accounts? Chances are probably 10 to 1 mm-hmm. that the interest that you create is going to roll into somebody else's account. They're going to get the opportunity and everybody's going to criticize you for screwing around with marketing. <laughs> that's, that's life. But, okay, I'm not here to vent uh, the frustrations of a sales rep. Yeah. Although, although I guess that's exactly what I'm doing. But I think your answer is good. I think sellers need to not fixate on being so short term and just trying to reap all the opportunities that are ready to close within the next six months. They need to do more marketing. Um, yeah, and I would have suggested. I was um, on a different podcast, the uh, the Hey Salespeople podcast, actually, this afternoon. <laughs> um, and I was uh, providing a little bit of advice. And one advice that I gave, which I hadn't really given before, but it's relevant to what you just mentioned, is if you are a, if you're a seller and you either pick a industry or you pick a buyer so that you're, so as you change roles, that experience and that the relationships and all those things go with you, then you could do all the stuff that you're doing on LinkedIn. And it probably would only take you a couple of years to double or triple your income because eventually companies are going to pay for that stuff. They're going to pay to have reps that, that all of their buyers know who they are. I was like four, three, four, five, it was probably closer to four or five years ago. I bet I saw the opportunity with what was happening where they're like, People are moving, B2B buying is happening on social, it's happening in communities, paid is like companies are doing all lead gen, there's a way better way to do it. And I moved for that way for three, four, five years. And now the market's starting to catch up to where I am. And I'm telling salespeople that salespeople should do the same thing and they should see where we're, what, what's going to happen in three years. And they should move toward that and get committed and then let the let the market come back to them. So that could be industry expertise. That could be creating content for the internet. That could be trying other, like other tact, like getting very good at asynchronous video or other tactics that are kind of emerging right now that could be very effective. So those are some of the recommendations. I agree with you. It's just a tough sell to salespeople to get them to do that because they know if they don't produce in the short term, they're not going to be here for the long term. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, it's a, uh, it's a it's a tricky bind for them, and it's it's very very difficult because I think most sales managers have no respect for the kind of long term thinking that I'm talking about. So so it's, crazy. It's, we're we're in enterprise sales, and we're talking about short term results. It's just like, yeah, but that's the way it is. Okay, thanks so yeah, much. Totally, I, I really liked your answer. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Great to see you. Same here. Thanks. Great discussion, Dave. Thanks for coming on, Tim. I'm going to bring you on next. You also submitted a nice in-depth question in advance. Would love for you to break it down for Chris. So welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you. Hey, Tim. Um, so, hey, Chris, how you doing? Doing great, thanks. Good to have you here. Great to be here. So the question was really um, kind of hypothetical. If you've got a budget of $500,000 per year, where do you invest it? And this is for a web development services agency. You know, there's a whole lot of areas that you can invest in. And if you've got a small team, small agency, put a lot of your effort kind of in the getting the work done rather than selling the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you depend on your marketing team to generate the leads. Where do you invest to get the biggest bang for your buck in lead gen? Mm-hmm. Headcount only or sorry, programs only or does the 500K include headcount? Uh, no, well, it could include vendors, I guess, uh, okay. or yeah, programs and vendors, but no internal headcount. Let's yeah. Do and assume that we've already got HubSpot in place. Yeah. Yeah. And then like how many, what's the headcount of the company right now? 
marketing team is two. What about total? So, what about total? Total is about fifty. Okay, cool. And you sell web dev services. Who do you sell it to, or is it kind of everyone? Uh, well, it's been changing a little bit over the past couple of years because we've taken on another platform, and the original platform is kind of going more enterprise scale. So, used to be, you know, kind of SMB to mid, and then now it's going upwards a little bit. Okay, so now you're moving more like larger companies. Well, but we also brought on this other platform, which is, you know, smaller companies. So it's totally both. And it doesn't matter if they're B2B, B2C, any industry. It doesn't. And if I were to make it easier, just go with the kind of mid to enterprise level, forget about the smaller, because that's really where the where the benefit is for us. Yeah. Okay. And then you sell this as a project. Is there any type of recurring maintenance revenue that you make afterwards? Yeah, project, 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 timed project, and then ongoing. About how much is a project worth? Like somewhere in the 100, 200K range? Yep, exactly. Sounds good. So the number one thing that I would do, it costs no money, is I would get way more clear on who you're selling to. And so like really narrow in, right? For us, when we were starting, we could have sold to anybody. Medical device. I, I was talking to e-commerce companies in 2019, right? SaaS, like pure product-led companies, financial services. There's a there's a million different types, big, small. Like there's so many ways that you can segment. Like really try to figure out whether it's looking at your your other customers. But the more that you focus on your customer, the more you can tailor your message to them. The more that you look like you're for them right? The more that you can build for them. And so that's the number one thing right now, because you're so like, it's kind of spread out for a lot of people, it might look like a commodity offering, right? Like, and so I think as you, if you're able to identify that, it's not going to happen overnight, but you should look at it. You should start to see where is there a big market opportunity? Who's willing to pay these prices? Are those companies growing? Are they investing more in marketing? Are the industries growing? Do we want to go along for that ride? That's basically what we did in SaaS. Right, like we have a huge value, we have huge value to add here. The industry is booming. There's tons of companies that need our work. There's not like if you look overall, there's only like ten to twenty thousand that we could sell to, but that's way more than enough. And so I would encourage you to try and figure that piece out. Once you figure that out, you can recraft your website and potentially your product and packaging. Maybe your website stuff is way more specific because it requires a back end, or it's only you do the web dev for for product-led motions, you can help with the analytics. I don't know, but you can start customer and then you can do messaging, product and packaging, and then you have like more of a clear foundation and then we can go out and spend the 500K. So let's assume that you put 20, well, you got your own web dev design in-house, so I'll assume that the website doesn't cost any money or you could allocate 25 grand to that. From there, I would probably um, recruit a, I wouldn't recruit a developer. Hold on, let me go through this. Your buyer is the VP marketing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I would architect a, a podcast for either VPs of marketing or website managers. So you could pick one of the two. Website managers might actually be a better target for this. And I would create a podcast for that. I would start inviting people that are inside of your target onto the podcast. I would spend whatever, 20, 50K on an agency to support that with the content post-production. I would start having that on LinkedIn. I would basically show website managers all the tricks that they might not know about to either make their website go better or all the like the little stuff that people ask you about that is like so simple for you. So I would start building those things, right? There's probably blogs about it, but it would be way better if it was packaged and put on a different format for social where people are out there. I wouldn't go heavy. Podcast versus video, for example, that's, that's podcast. You said podcast, so I assume. Yeah. Video, video podcast. Okay. Okay. Um, I would not, I would not go paid. I would not do Google is going to be competitive, expensive, and they're gonna be looking for a commodity. I wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't run, I would, wouldn't run a lot of paid social at the stage that you're at right now. And so it would be it, the 500 K is going to be effort in organic. And I guess it's going to end up being agency and headcount. So podcast, organic, social, mainly LinkedIn, YouTube videos that answer common questions. As I like continue to talk through this and peel back the layers, I think that this is mainly a targeting and positioning And if you can nail that, then the marketing will get a lot easier. Awesome. Thank you very much.
Cool. Any follow-up? Anything you want to go deeper on? What, what are some of the things that you were thinking? I'd love to hear what your thoughts were. Well, I, I mean, you already hit the nail on the head with focusing, and that's what we've been doing for the past few months is really trying to narrow it down. And I feel like we've started repackaging our offering. We're starting to get the landing pages up that are narrowing uh, the focus also. And, you know, it's just the kind of classic world where it's easy to say, you know, just do a bod- podcast, but it's like, it's hard to imagine that actually coming to fruition with the limited resources of staff that we have. So maybe it's maybe it's actually get the headcount. Maybe that's an investment right there. Mm-hmm. It could be the headcount. It might actually be like more beneficial to just have someone that's turnkey that already does, you know what I mean? That does it for you. If you don't fully understand the mechanics on your own, it might be helpful to have a partner that does so they can show you those things. And then you can start as you go, right? Like my old content was like, so low tech, but it worked. It's it would still work because the information was good. The production doesn't really matter. And so that would be the recommendation initially. I think that you could do so much stuff with like like how ProfitWell does uh pricing page teardown. I feel like you could do like homepage teardown or like web dev speed. I don't even know what these terms are, but like you know, web page speed teardown or something like that, that um your your user or your like influencer of a decision maker might be really on board with. Um, and get value from. So those are those are some of the ideas. So the challenge that I can foresee is going to management and saying, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. But that means that you need to drop all of your paid search, display ads, any of your existing efforts and invest in this mm-hmm. much longer term, you know, approach, which which won't necessarily give you results for the first couple of years. You have uh, a couple of years, I think, is overstated. I think that if when done correctly, you'd have inbound lead flow on LinkedIn within 90 days, not 100 leads, but you'd have a couple. And so you said you had HubSpot. You should be able to go and reverse engineer whether that the paid search spender is driving revenue pretty easily. Um, my experience, it's not even my gut. It's my experience tells me that it's, it might have got you one project last year. <laughs> yeah. Could oh, very it's, well it's, it's gotten us more, but 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 oh. t- your point is still totally valid. Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. And so maybe it's not about maybe it's not about stopping that, right? Like it's project revenue at lower margins than software, right? With a non-recurring, like a small recurring. So you need to do the math on that because, like, you're not looking for a one-to-one ROAS in that in that place. So I would do the analysis. Maybe there's some ways to make it efficient. Maybe there's Maybe you keep it going because you're getting two dollars for every one dollar you spend there, and that's okay. Below the margins, one dollar for every two dollars probably isn't good enough. And then some of the other like leftover dollars could go to funding this, so it doesn't have to be a complete either or. Yeah, great. Thank you. Cool. Try some of that stuff out. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, I will. Awesome. Thanks, good to see good you, luck. Tim. Good luck. You too. Thanks. Questions keep coming. Steven is up next. Good to have you back on the show, Stephen. Excited for you to get into your question. Thank you, Megan. Nice to see everyone. Um, I believe you've touched upon this, and Megan did also, about gated content. And that's no longer like what people are doing for marketing. Like, What would you suggest to do with that content instead of gating it? Mm-hmm. This is a great question. I, I love like narrowing in on this topic so that people really understand. Because I hear a lot of marketers say, we're not going to gate our content anymore. And they're in interviews with me. And then I ask them, why aren't you going to gate? Why are you stopping content? Why are you stop gating it? And they don't really know. And so the reason that you ungate content is in a bunch of different ways, but just taking the forms off your stuff and leaving it on your website and changing nothing else is going to drive a marginal impact at best. It needs to be a more holistic change than just taking the forms off. And so some of the thing, some of the signals that come along with ungating content is one, you stop prioritizing MQLs as a primary marketing metric in order like that. You basically have to make that choice in order to remove the gates or you have to redefine an MQL either way. So that's one. The second thing is, and the main one in my view is that you think differently about content distribution. So when it's gated, you need to have it on your website behind a form on a PDF, like it's 2009. When you don't have to gate them, you can take that PDF, you can take an excerpt out of it, you can chop it up, you can make it into an animation, you can put it on LinkedIn, you can take one of the graphs, you can move it into a picture, you can put it on Pinterest, you could summarize the report in a video like what we're doing right now and do an event about it. You could summarize the report, take that video and put it on YouTube 
companies don't do any of those tactics because they need to funnel people back to submit a form to get the PDF. The flexibility that it creates on distribution is a major driver. The last one is that it allows you to think about content creation fundamentally differently, not only on strategy and topics, but also on formats. And so when you're optimizing for gated content, which is basically optimizing for MQL form fills, you create certain types of content that six tips to do this better, right? Or the state of this, which is typically fluffy, doesn't add a ton of value with a clickbaity type of headline to get people to fill out a form. And so, and when you don't have that, you can really start to think about what do these people want to hear? What would be the best way to deliver that? Maybe a PDF isn't the best way to do it. So you got me riled up here, but those are some, those are some of the reasons. Deprioritize poor defined MQLs, think differently about distribution, think differently about what content you create. It kind of just turns into a blog post then if you're not taking the lead. If if that, if all you do is change the, uh, take away the form and then move it from a PDF. Yes. You just take a PDF and you convert it into a blog post and you take the form down and that's not going to drive a significant amount of value. Yeah. Fair enough. Thank you. Yeah. Great question. I love, love going back to those types of ones. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks, Steven. Always appreciate your questions. All right. I got another question from Amanda. Excited to have you on tonight. Welcome to the show. Why don't you uh, break down your question for Chris? Hi. Yeah. Thanks for bringing me on. Hi, Chris. Hey, Amanda. I, I am a senior marketing manager at a um, large SaaS company, and we have a brand new team that was onboarded. I actually think our CMO is a big fan of yours. Um, a nice. lot of the strategy, I think, of our team is really to implement a lot of this stuff that we're talking about. So to kind of break it down, not to get too in the weeds, because I want this question to be relevant for everybody else, but we are owning different industries as team members. So we're owning different industries as a start of just kind of digging into some um, strategy. And mine is in the tech and SaaS industry. And I would really like to start using my personal LinkedIn to reach out to people and start to kind of deeply know that customer. Um, But my personal LinkedIn right now is really just used for job searching, um, following Refine Labs, <laughs> to be honest, mm-hmm. and um, learning on my own, but I don't really post that often. So I'm curious how you would recommend I start maybe posting on my personal platform to eventually get to a point where I'm engaging people in my specific target audience and creating value for them and also just getting to know them. At one point, Everyone was at a point where they weren't posting on LinkedIn, right? A lot of people were there. Like it wasn't too long ago where all I did was use LinkedIn for job searching, right? So it's cool. Um, who's your buyer? You might have mentioned that, but I might have missed it. Yeah, our buyer is uh, HR professionals. So in the tech space. Okay. And so what you want to do is you want to post in order to engage with them. So here's what I would do if I were you because I'm sure that we're relatively similar in this is that like, while I 100% respect and value the function of HR, I don't know a ton about it to a level where a chief people officer or someone would think that I'm super credible, right? And so what I would do instead is that I would create a show where I interview all of those people that know really what they're talking about. So I'd be looking for, I don't know, I'll just throw some stuff at chief people officer at Google or director of HR at this, you know, SaaS company, depending on whether you're SMB, middle market enterprise, you can start to carve out and pick those. And then I would have them come on and I would interview them. I did this. This is the exact strategy that I did when I was going into medic, um, into ICU physicians and intensivists. I created a show and I interviewed experts. And so I would interview them quickly what you find is that as you start to get the the knowledge transfer from these people over to you for lack of a better way to say it like very quickly you become very knowledgeable on the subject because you're talking to people that are super knowledgeable often so you get a knowledge transfer which over time allows you to guide the conversations and then add your point of view over time but initially you get content to put on your own linkedin which is mainly highlighting other people and sharing those 
thoughts, but it's also going to teach you from a personal standpoint, the mechanics of running a content strategy, which was exactly what it taught me in 2017. And so you do that, whatever, 10, 20, 30 episodes, you're way, way more knowledgeable on the subject. You're way more knowledgeable on your buyer. You have 30 additional potential relationships with people that could be your customer. You have a bunch of posts that are going out on LinkedIn. You have a body of work of 30 podcasts and you're off, you're off to, you're off to the races. So that's how I would do it. I'll quick follow up to that too. Um, we can do more so realistically, I'm I'm about like the next step, right? And and interviewing the CFO of Google or something would be incredible. But I wouldn't want that for my first one in the first place because it's I bet your first podcast was not nearly to the quality that it is now. So how would you ease into that and just take that first step? And I guess a, a second part two of that would be how important is audio quality and some of those other things to starting a video series? <laughs> <laughs> I'm laughing because it's ironic, right? Like we're on a Zoom here, which is pretty low quality. Like two people ago, I answered a question where it was cutting out the whole time, True. <laughs> right? Like <laughs> audio, audio quality is really not that important. The quality of the information is most important. You can figure out the quality later. Like just get st- get started. If the chief people officer or whoever of Google wants to come on your podcast, they're not going to care if it's on a Zoom or you're using some platform. I do believe that, right? And I've interviewed very sophisticated people from Zoom that you have access to that you could do on your own with like AirPods or a mic or a you know low end microphone. And so, like, don't get caught up in these types of details when you do it. Like the next step is to say, I need to go find my first guest. Who is that going to be? And I'm going to message 10 people and I'm going to get my first guest. And you figure it out as you go, right? You figure out, okay, the mic that I have is not at it. Like it was me and AirPods. The AirPods that I have are not adequate. I need to get a microphone. And then I get one. And then I'm on, and we've been evaluating other platforms from Zoom for Zoom. But the fact of the matter is that being able to be live with everyone on the video is super important. And most virtual event platforms don't allow that to happen. And so I would rather stay on Zoom where everyone can be on video and it feels more like a community than you watching me and not engaging with all the peers and people that are here. So yeah, I'm, if you have another follow-up, let's just keep rolling, right? So ne- the next step is commit to it, go and find, make a list of the types of people and then go and try and find a guest. And then would you clip those into mini like the best little nuggets from it and put it on your personal LinkedIn or would you just post the whole thing? (laughs) I would definitely clip it um, and I would make it a message and then I would tag the people that I'm interviewing so that they see it and I would share those those assets with them because you already did them and it highlights their work. So I would share it with them too. I did this this exact strategy and I had two, three, four of the most influential people in the in the meta the medical niche is that I was targeting the most influential people in the country or the world that I had built relationships with because I had them on our podcast and no one else was inviting them onto a podcast in 2017 they probably still aren't and so I could have them on the podcast and then I could would see them at the conference and then I would be able to talk you know what I mean you just go from there and all of a sudden you got like a couple of key people that love your product that have a great relationship with you that feel good about your company but have influence, like a lot of people ask them where to buy stuff or what stuff to buy in this category and they like you more. So there's a ton of secondary benefits to doing this even outside of the content creation. Just the, uh, the pure awareness of influential people, I think is huge. I've noticed that some people do it to me now. I think it's really smart. MarTech vendors have, or some type of vendors have me on their podcast. I've never heard of their product before, but then I go on their podcast and I talk and the like just the touch point of me knowing the brand name and knowing what it does is worth it to them. With those interviews too, would you have a theme in mind or an outline of a lot of questions or would you try to maybe have a couple pointers that you wanted to touch on and just let the conversation go where it may? You're probably going to need more of an outline initially. That's what I needed to. So you're going to kind of need to have it structured based on whatever you want to accomplish. And so it's like 
you're probably going to want something like that early on. And then over time, as you understand the subject matter more deeply, as you understand the topics, you understand the people, you can start to loosen up on those um, those guidance. But I go in, if I'm doing a one-on-one guest podcast interview, I know exactly what that person's expertise is. I know exactly how I'm going to slot, slot that into the story that I'm trying to tell to all of the listeners so that I can add, use this person's expertise to add value to all the listeners in a way that, that aligns with my perspective. Thank you so much. Cool. Happy to help. We'll see you in a couple of weeks and you got one or two episodes up. <laughs> Good to have you on Amanda. All right. Tracy has a fun question. It's good to see you tonight, Tracy. Welcome to the Hi. show. <laughs> hey, Tracy. Hey, um, Amanda's question kind of sparked something that's been at the back of my mind for a while. When you're talking about personal brand on LinkedIn, organic, and the best, it's best to come from your personal feed, but you're interviewing SMEs and kind of becoming a subject matter expert yourself. Is there a line between your personal brand and the company? Or if you're all in, there is no line. Like I'm fortunate enough that my company trusts me and our, our leadership uh, knows that I, I know the boundaries. I'm meeting with the marketing teams with, with these uh, subject matter experts and architects. And what do you see in most cases? Is there a line or uh, is there anything to be aware of with rules? Or is it just you're all in, you're all in? I'm not exactly sure what you mean. Like, are you afraid of crossing the line on your personal profile or are you just help me understand that? Like company, like they just had me put together, like for most of the team members, like a social media guidelines, you're not representing the company, you know, you're your own person. You know, marketing is a little different, but at the same Mm -hmm. point, I'm not a subject matter expert in mm-hmm. architecture and construction, right? But I can interact and dispense company information. I'm becoming more of an expert and I can detect misinformation and tell people when they're wrong, when they're commenting yeah. on our posts. But legally, I'm not, you know. And you're talking about this from your own personal or from the company or both? From both. Yeah. I, guess I was thinking more personally, like I'm saying mm-hmm. things like from a company perspective, like I'm interviewing yeah. these experts and it's my personal opinions, but also reflection on the company. I yeah. don't know if you've ever how, run into that. How big's the company that we're talking about here? Sounds like a big company problem. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a bigger company. Yeah. It's um, a thousand people in the field. Yeah. 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 And so office. This, yeah. It, this is a, a big company CYA. Uh, so if you notice, like this is uh, the pattern here is from like 2009 Twitter when every every single person that worked for like a bank or a big company or a tech company and their Twitter profile would have an asterisk at the bottom of the profile that said, all views are my own, do not represent this company. <laughs> yeah. No matter what, that's exactly what's happening here. It's just a complete, it's a complete CYA, like it has nothing to do. So I would. No matter what, it's your personal opinion. It's just the company trying to cover, mm-hmm. like, cover themselves with an additional, like, legal thing here. But there's nothing. I would make no changes to my behavior based on that. Okay. Yeah, and I wasn't going to. And like I said, my leadership trusts me. It's just when I was putting together the policy for other people that might not be in marketing or know about brand. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy how how big companies subtly disincentivize these types of things. Like that's mm-hmm. a, and that's, I would, I think that subtle might be <laughs> pretty direct here, like doing things that make people feel like they're doing something wrong by just being themselves on a social network on the internet, which is basically how people communicate and get information. Just like if you went to a dinner party 20 years ago, no response needed there. I'm just pointing that out that like, in my experience too, it's not only big companies, like in my experience at a, you know, 300, 500 employee headcount company, like the culture of the company, if you're doing these things means that, that you get looked down on or somebody makes fun of you or like somebody thinks that you're trying to get a new job or whatever those things are, because they just, they just don't get it. Yeah. In my view, you're all good. Just keep, keep rolling. Yep. Thank you. Cool. Good to see you, Tracy. How are you feeling about an update on standardized B2B marketing measurement system. You want to circle back to the last agenda point? You want to kick it to next week? How are you feeling about that topic right now? I'm going to kick it. All right. All right. 
I can bring us back to some TikTok questions. You want to go back to the beginning? Let's, bring... let's do it. Yeah, just let me know. It said my internet connection is unstable. So if we start to get unstable, then just let me know. All right, I will. Nelson, you're my closer. Not, I don't know if this is the last question, but you're going to ask your TikTok question. <laughs> Thanks, Megan. Hey, everyone. Um, hey, Chris. So nothing uh, controversial this time. Just wanted to get an understanding from you what uh, you know you recommend if people are a good fit for TikTok. You know, any recommendations on what they should be doing from a strategy, tactics, process uh, perspective, or any examples uh, you can point to of people who are doing it well to kind of follow? We're experimenting on the company page. We're posting, I think, about once a day. My page, we're still working on the content. I haven't posted anything. But we're starting to get the wheels turning, and we have a commitment to it. But we just don't have the the data and the insights to really know what's working, right? So there's, like, general things and trends on the platform that are working that you could, like, research online or look for things that you could get from someone other than me because honestly the information from someone else is probably better at this point but the goal just like we did on linkedin over the past two and a half three years is to understand that platform better than anyone in b2b and it won't be hard to do that so that's the the current mission um, gotcha. be great. i think it'd be great for you by the way <laughs> thanks thanks nelson cool. all right well closing thoughts then yeah, close your connection, Trinidad, whatever's on your mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Closing thoughts here. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully the internet gets better soon. It's been really, it's been really bothering me, but that's all right. Um, just want to like reiterate what I mentioned at the beginning. Really grateful. Like we're, you know, some of the people on here. Like I haven't actually, I, David, I have met you before. And Omar, I have met you. There's some people, Matthew, I haven't met you before. Jess, you're like way over there, but I'm coming to Australia soon. Like. Nelson, haven't met you. Dave, I appreciate all of you. And so can't wait to meet you soon when the, the world's opening up and we'll, uh, we'll keep going from there. But yeah, generally just grateful for all of the attendees and all the listeners. Good to see you all. Have a great week. Thanks, everyone. See you next Tuesday. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for checking out this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. You know, it's crazy to think that now more than 15,000 demand marketers, sales reps, product marketers, field marketers, CMOs, and everything in between are listening to this podcast and getting a ton of value out of it. And so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been getting value out of it, I would really, really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating in the podcast section. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you and see you for the next episode.